0: Hello and welcome to the Historian's Cut. Throughout the history of cinema, nuns have been a recurring source of inspiration for filmmakers, from the sound of music to sister act. Today we're looking at the nun story, in which Audrey Hepburn plays a nun, from initiation in a 1920s Belgian convent to missionary life in the Congo, ending with her involvement in the resistance to Nazi Germany. But what can the nun story tell us about life in and outside the convent? With me to answer this question is Sam Manning, our resident cinema historian, Dr. Maurice Brody, modern historian, and today's special guest, Dr. Bridget Harrison, expert in cultural representations of nuns, whose recent articles include The Nun as Narrative, Religion, Writing and Reputation in the Life of Mary Frances Cusack, published in Women's History Review. Welcome all three of you. Hello. 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 Sam I'm going to start with you as I alluded to nuns have been a popular source of inspiration throughout cinema history and the nun story was a big hit when it was released am I correct could you tell us a bit about its background and its release please before we get going any
1: further uh yeah absolutely Phil um so you're right to say that it was uh it was a big hit I mean, it was a big production. Uh, it was produced by Warner Brothers and it was directed by Fred Zinnemann, who also directed films like High Noon and From Here to Eternity. Uh, and obviously you've said that it starred uh, Audrey Hepburn, who was a big star at that, at that time. It was nominated for eight Oscars. It unfortunately didn't win any of those. Ben-Hur was the big winner uh, that year and went home with uh, 11 Oscars. Critically, it was generally well received, uh, although some were critical of its length uh, and also the score uh, of the film. In terms of box office, it did. It did very well. It was one of the top box office hits in the in the UK uh, of 1959. Unfortunately, it actually wasn't the most popular film about nurses in that year. Um, Carry On Nurse beat it to that uh, title Um, and neither was it the most popular film about uh, missions. um, The Inn of the Six Happiness beat it to that. But it was still it was still very popular at that time. Okay, uh, well, maybe we might have episodes on Carry On
0: Nurse in series two or three. You you never know. Uh, well, <laughs> um, th- th- thanks very much for that, Sam. Again, I I also kind of briefly uh, sketched the, the plot in the introduction. Could you could you maybe fill in a, a few more details in, in that just for for viewers who who haven't seen the film?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it begins in the nineteen twenties. When a young Belgian woman, who is the daughter of a celebrated surgeon, enters a convent um, where she's given the name Sister Luke, but her intelligence and her kind of independent spirit often clash uh, with the principle of unquestioning obedience uh, that's expected of her. When she's in the convent, she studies medicine and hopes to be sent to the Congo as uh, as a nursing nun, but she's instead first sent to a sanatorium in Brussels. Later in the film, she eventually does go to the Congo. Uh, where she works as an assistant to a doctor in a, in a European hospital. Uh, and then when she returns home to, to Belgium, um, the death of her father at the hands of the, the Germans during the Second World War prompts her to help uh, the resistance, and she eventually leaves the convent. Thanks, Sam. And
0: um, Marius, I know that you've looked into this. It's correct to say that the film's based on on the life of a real person?
2: Yes, that's that's right, Phil. It's based on the novel The Nun's Story, which was written by Catherine Hume, which was uh, based on the life of a Belgian nun called Marie-Louise Habits. I feel like they have missed a trick by not calling the book Changing Habits, but uh, The Nun's Story is, is, is what was decided on in the end.
0: Very good. OK, um, I'm going to turn to you now, Bridget, and ask you to give a little bit of the context of what was happening in, in the Catholic Church. At the time that the film was made, I think we're going to be mentioning an event called Vatican II at a number of points during this episode. So I think let's just say what that is first, when it happened, and what effect it had on the Catholic Church before we move any further.
3: Yeah, so Vatican II, unfortunately, is not the name of a film that we're going to be discussing. Um, <laughs> it was Vatican II, or the Second Vatican Council, was a major. Council held in the Catholic Church to sort of address issues of modernization and also a perceived crisis in new adherents and new people joining religious life, either as priests or monks or nuns, that was held between 1962 and 1965. And it had sort of very broad, overreaching changes in the Catholic Church. It's when things like the vernacular mass started to become more standard, a greater emphasis on ecumenism, greater reconciliation between the Catholic Church and Judaism and Jewish communities, obviously, following some of the events covered in the film. So a broad attempt to modernize the church. And part of what happened as part of Vatican II was that every religious order and congregation was asked to look back on why they were founded and effectively to justify their own existence and then to reassess the religious rule that they were living under to make sure that it best served that justification for their own purpose and function within both within the church and within lay society.
0: Okay. Yeah, th- thanks, Bridget. So yeah, you you mentioned the change that it had for, I suppose, the churchgoers of the of the Catholic Church. And then you, you also mentioned the specific ramifications for for religious orders as well. I think it's worth emphasising that this film was released in 1959, and that Congress was 1962, did you say, uh, Bridget?
3: 62 to 65, yeah.
0: Okay. And you, you've told me that you, I'm going to put you on the spot here, that you can actually give quite a good potted history of the institution of the convent in a very short space of time. And I'd really love to hear this, Bridget. So um, do, you, do you mind just kind of um, sharing that with us and maybe kind of dwelling on, on the period of time that the nun story covers? So like does the 20s to the 50s represent, let's say, a, a high point or a, or a particular golden age in in that kind of overriding history of, of convent life?
3: Okay, I think I said beforehand I could do the history of religious congregations in three sentences, so we'll see how I go. <laughs> um, So from the very start of the Christian church, there have been people who have dedicated their lives to focusing exclusively on their religion. There were what were called desert fathers who were ascetics who disappeared out into the deserts, particularly associated around years of modern day Egypt to focus exclusively on their religion. And alongside the Desert Fathers, as they were known, there were also so-called Desert Mothers, women who decided to do the same thing. Then sort of in the early medieval period, you have these groups kind of banding together and creating religious rules so they could live in communities together. The earliest we have on record for that is that of St. Augustine, and Augustinian rule is still a common religious rule that you come across. And then as the way of things kind of patriarchy happened. Women religious were sort of relegated and were given less roles. They were at various points specifically confined to the convent space so they were told they were not able to kind of do good works in the community but they could only enact their religious vocation through prayer up until the 1750s where the pope issued a papal bull so a papal decree stating that under certain conditions Women religious, which is the general term for nuns, sisters, any woman who entered religious life, could do active work in their congregation. They could run schools, they could run hospitals, and they could leave their convent grounds, provided they took what were called simple vows. So they took vows that were renewed periodically rather than lifelong ones. And we do see that in the film. Once that happened, There was a big explosion of the numbers of women that entered religious life in Ireland, which is where my area of expertise is. There went from being only 122 nuns in 1800 to about 1500 by 1850, which of course incorporates the famine, and then 8000 by 1900. So a massive increase in the numbers. And that was particularly unusual in Ireland. That was a a very large growth, but that growth was kind of replicated across the Catholic world. So by the time the the film is set, you have kind of an established culture of convents and congregations, an awful lot of teaching orders. And it would be safe to say that most Catholic women living in most places in Europe or America would have known someone who was a nun. It was kind of something of a high point. By the time the film is made, as I said, there was sort of a crisis as fewer people were going into religious life. But certainly when the film is set, it is possibly not a golden age, but certainly a much more golden one than they were to face later in the century.
0: That's absolutely fantastic, Bridget. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to take the first question now to try to kind of unpick the topic of today, which is what can the nun's story tell us about life in and outside of the convent let's start at the beginning because the film takes us from initiation all the way through to the nun in question's departure. Sam's told us a little bit about the background of this particular person who who wants to become a nun. Could you maybe tell us if that is typical so she's she 's educated she she 's middle class and what what would motivate somebody to to become a nun
3: yeah you 've hit on two things that were certainly very common. Generally speaking, at the very least for the nuns we have records of, and I can talk a little bit more about that, they tended to be educated, they tended to be middle or upper class. A lot of the time they would have been educated in a convent and that would have been where the early focus of their vocation came. It was a very common, very commonly acknowledged that convents were an excellent tool for recruitment because it meant that you had young women who were raised... Given a strong religious education, were introduced to some of the rules and structures of the congregation in question, and also would have formed friendships and relationships with the women within the convent. So it was very, very common that there would be sort of a high level of schooling or there would have been some kind of connection. As for the reasons to join a convent, there were many. One thing that is often overlooked is first and foremost, spiritual. It meant that you had time to focus on spiritual life and sort of focus on what was called internal perfection. Focus specifically on trying to bring yourself in line with God as much as possible, which was a huge draw and something that meant an awful lot to people who were sort of raised with a high focus on spiritual fulfillment and the importance of spirituality In addition to that, it was a respectable way out of the marriage market for anyone who wanted that. You had opportunities to pursue certain careers that otherwise wouldn't be open. We see in the film that one of Sister Luke's main motivations is that she would be able to go on mission. That certainly was a motivation for some. Being able to become teachers would be one. Getting kind of nursing education would be another and also, like that, the opportunity to travel and to have a certain level of autonomy outside of sort of the family system, which was an appeal for a lot.
0: Okay, so in, th- in that respect, I think the... And I draw on all three of you to come in here. I would say that the film the film gets it about right in that, in that respect. Maybe, I think perhaps it doesn't dwell so much on the religious views of Sister Luke before she comes a nun, but... You definitely hear her talking a lot about her desire to go to the Congo and you also have a sense of her wanting to emulate the achievements of of her father who, as Sam said in his introduction, was a celebrated physician.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Bridget, the kind of middle-class nature of the the typical nun recruit. I think possibly a lot of us have an idea of nuns joining Convent or women joining convents as a kind of call for help, almost like a crisis. There's mentioned at the very start of the film, the idea of Sister Look isn't an orphan and she she has her father's consent. So that kind of idea that it's it's kind of fleeing society almost. But from what you're saying, that's not really the case. More of a, a positive commitment to join.
3: No, and indeed, it was often not necessarily very straightforward to join religious life, as I'm sure we'll talk about in, in a minute. There was kind of several processes of initiation, but as well as that, you were expected to bring a dowry, same as someone would if they were married during at least the 19th century. And that dowry was meant to be an amount that was large enough that the woman could live off the interest of it. So the convent would hold that money for her. If she ever decided to leave, she would then take that money back. But that money would be enough to financially support her lifestyle in the convent going forward. And that's obviously a fair amount of money, and it did require parental approval to get that money for many women. The level of affirmative support that women received for joining religious life changed Massively from family to family, you do get accounts of people having to convince their parents, accounts of people sort of making compromises with their parents, and some accounts of people waiting until their parents died before they actually entered. But it did, at the very least, require sort of tacit approval. The exception to that would have been what were called lay nuns, which you get in some congregations but not in others. These would have been working class women who would have not had a dowry. And they would have done, in a lot of cases, the menial work of the convent. So they would have, in a lot of ways, served almost as the servants of the choir nuns. And this dates from the early modern period, but you do see it up into the 19th century.
2: You mentioned the kind of hierarchy there, Bridget, between the nuns able to provide a dowry and the ones who weren't. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the kind of more general hierarchy within the the convent. It's fairly obvious from the film that age seems to play quite a, a large part in how each sister is, is respected amongst the sisterhood, I suppose. What was the various stages of, of becoming a nun? How did you rise through the ranks?
3: Yes, yeah, so first and foremost, the structure of the convent was at the very least meant to be democratic, like that there was the figure of the mother superior who would be the final word on things, but that was typically an elected position. Sometimes a priest from outside would, or a bishop would nominate someone for that role, but typically in most religious congregations, again, these things vary. That would have been an elected role and it would have been elected for a certain period of time. But the first step would have been postulancy, which again varies from congregation to congregation, but typically about six months which would have been the first step in joining in becoming a postulant that often started the religious process. And a big part of the role of postulancy was weeding out people who weren't suitable for religious life. So that's when they tended to sort of give people very hard labor, reduce sleeping hours and sort of make sure that people were certain about what it was that they wanted and challenge their expectations of what they expected out of religious life. And that would have been about six months, typically.
2: Sounds like hazing almost.
3: A little bit. I have compared the process of becoming a nun. It is a little bit like a boot camp in a lot of ways in that part of what is being done is the breaking down of individual identity and the formation of corporate identity. And then that comes in more with the novitiate when you are trained very, very strongly in the religious rule, very specific behaviours both in terms of general broader morality and also timetabling when you get to do each thing, how your day should be structured. And the novitiate process would often involve any training that needed to be done, teacher training, nursing training. And that, again, it varies from congregation, but normally a period of one to three years. And then there would be the taking of the religious vows, either temporary vows or solemn lifelong vows depending on the congregation
1: so one of the things you talked about there Bridget was um, the process of depersonalization and I think this is depicted quite clearly in the in the film so you see things like obviously the fact that she has to change her name when she enters the convent but also she has to to cut her hair I mean are these the kinds of things you're you're talking about and and how well do you think the film represents the process of becoming a nun and adjusting to convent life
3: yeah I think the film the film does a very good job of showing a way to look at religious life and I can kind of talk about what film and literary traditions it's drawing on but the idea of changing your name was very common cutting your hair was very common the habit was very important symbolically the process of becoming a novice was your reception ceremony which is shown in the film and that was often called taking the white veil so it was the first time you veiled your hair. All of these things were given a lot of importance and as I said as well as that sort of living by the religious rule of the convent that had very specific rules for how you should behave and go about things and particularly the emphasis on obedience to that rule which is the central conflict of the film but that was. It was definitely a way to view religious life.
2: Bridget, I think from the book that the film was based on, the nun who was the inspiration for Audrey Hepburn's character was a member of the Sisters of Charity of Jesus and Mary, that particular institute. Was there a lot of difference between different institutes in terms of how they were structured and what daily life was like? Is it obvious that this is that particular type of convent, or could this be kind of any convent in Europe at the time?
3: There are a couple of broad trends. I mentioned Augustinian rule. That tends to be the strictest. There's also Benedictine rule, Franciscan rule, and between those, every individual religious congregation would have its own set of guidelines for the particular way that their community was structured and for the particular purpose there was. Typically what tended to happen at least in sort of the 19th and into the 20th century was that a religious congregation tended to be set up by a group of interested people who saw a need in their particular community. So To use Ireland as an example, you have the Sisters of Holy Faith, which were set up specifically to run one particular orphanage. The Sisters of St. Louis were brought into Amonaghan to run one particular reformatory school. The Presentation Sisters were founded specifically to teach poor children. And then sometimes you get ones like the Sisters of Mercy and the Sisters of Charity, where it's a more general, we will aid the poor but they would meet a specific need in their specific location. And then as they grew, they would spread out to other locations, bringing some of their own focus, but also meeting the needs of the community when they they got there.
0: I think it is worth making clear to our listeners that this is a significant part of the film, isn't it? It's about, I don't know, maybe the first at least 45 minutes, possibly an hour, where that there is actually very little dialogue isn't there and actually very little progression of the plot i think it almost has a kind of a documentary feel of observing the process of an initiation through to taking the veil if i'm using the the right terminology and all through that time the the different norms and rules that the character is having to adapt herself to it really is a really is a big part of the film well, Bridget you, you mentioned about the, the role of convents in the community and that's where the, the film then goes to next doesn't it M- maybe we can also look at this this aspect of convents as, as public service providers we see nuns as nurses you've talked about nuns as teachers the sanatorium that Sister Luke works in is a, is a mental health institution so this gives a very strong idea of convents as as public services providers would you would you like to kind of elaborate on that a little bit
3: yeah absolutely as i said that was one of the founding motivations for a lot of the more sort of modern modern inverted commas um religious congregations that were founded in the 18th 19th and early 20th centuries They were quite specifically based around the idea of lending public support and doing charity work. And as we see in the film, that lends into the missions. The film itself presents quite an interesting example of two traditions of depicting nuns' lives. That of sort of almost hagiography in some instances of showing kind of the wonderful sacrifices and the great work that is done that is largely in the second half of the film. And then the first sort of showing the nuns and the convent as the other, leaning into the sort of the oddness and the strangeness and the idea of sort of pulling back the curtain and seeing what religious life was like, and also emphasising particular hardships and strife. You see that a lot in early Victorian literature and even going back to the French Enlightenment, there was a lot of concern about convents and women being trapped in convents, women taking a notion when they were young and then ending up being trapped in convents for years and years. So the film is definitely playing off that, but also showing the more positive side of religious life as well that would have been pushed more by Catholic sources.
0: To look at that question of convents as service providers from another viewpoint, like you can maybe answer this question perhaps better from an Irish perspective than from a Belgian one. But if you if you fell ill in the first half of the 20th century, uh, what's the chance that It would be a nun who would be taking care of you.
3: It was certainly more likely that if you needed to learn your letters, that it would be a nun that would teach you. But there was certainly a large emphasis on nursing within many religious communities. There was the Bon Secours nurses, which ran several hospitals. Uh, In Ireland, there is still controversy because the Sisters of Mercy own several hospital sites. But... It would have been like a fairly prominent part of religious life. I can also borrow from my own family history, which is that my grandmother was sent to train to become a nurse in England by the religious congregation that she went to school with. And she was 99% certain they were doing this in the hope that she would come back and join the congregation. And she knew she wasn't going to. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but they never directly asked her, so she sort of just went along with it and worked as a a nurse in 1940s London and then quietly got married and, as far as I know, didn't go back.
1: <laughs> on, a, on a kind of related note, uh, Bridget, I was wondering how much choice nuns had over where they were sent for, for missionary work. So in the film, Sister Luke is eventually sent to the Congo Was she sent to the Congo because that was the place where Belgian nuns were were sent? Um, Was it because of that colonial uh, relationship?
3: You've sort of touched on two ideas. First, the amount of choice that nuns would have over where they went. Officially, they wouldn't have had any choice. A lot of the time, religious congregations would have taken into account people's personal wishes And also their abilities when assigning people to different roles. But again, this emphasis on obedience, it would have been expected that people would go where they were needed. And additionally, when you look at biographies of women religious, you get accounts of people intentionally not volunteering for the role they wanted as an act of humility. And you see elements of that in the film as well, when she is told to fail her exams as a sign of humility. This idea of sort of sacrificing things that would give you personal glory for the sake of demonstrating your own modesty. And you do get accounts of that more broadly as well. On the other hand, yes, people would tend to go where there were already connections. There is a huge amount of work on the role of missionaries in the colonial process, but one thing that is often left out of that is Catholic missionaries, which were often religious congregations they were often run by nuns or orders of priests and you do see that in the film the fact that she is a belgian nun that is sent to the congo that is absolutely not a mistake that is directly because of the colonial ties between congo and belgium at that time
2: bridget it's portrayed in the film that there's a bit of tension between some of the the native congolese and the missionaries and the nuns one is is killed I know from my own sort of work looking at other things that, you know, there was a lot of tension in China between missionaries and, and, and local Chinese. I mean, the Belgian Congo, even by European standards of colonialism, was is what seemed to be a fairly brutalising regime, a fairly awful example of, of imperialism. I'm just wondering, was this quite common for, for nuns to be attacked by locals? or?
3: It certainly did happen. The last time I was able to get into an archive, which unfortunately was a while ago, I was looking at records of members of the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is a large international organization, international congregation, but they had members in India during the Indian mutiny of the 1850s and they had to hide in the roof and the steeple of their church so that they didn't get burned out. It was the only stone building they had, so they all climbed up, including with their students, and hid for several days in the roof of their church in the hopes that people would pass them by because they were specifically being targeted as symbols both of Christianity and of Western oppression. And even, in fact, that same congregation, Mars, might be of interest to you, were also targeted by anarchists during the Spanish Civil War And managed to argue the fact that they were English and therefore shouldn't have been burned was one of the things that they sort of argued that they weren't part of the conflict because they were an international congregation and used their English and also Irish connections to sort of bolster that claim.
2: Pretty wishful thinking on their part, I think.
0: Bridget, I know that you yourself have touched on the practice of medicine in the colonies in your research and maybe the story kind of picks up a little bit of pace at this point in the film but there's also a little bit of that documentary style so like you learn that there's a white hospital and a black hospital they talk about the particular well she herself contracts tb and you look at the kinds of illnesses and kind of medical cases that that she had to deal with any of these details, did, did any of these jump out at you as being, oh yeah, this is something that I, I'd, I'd come across in my research?
3: Yeah, the role of medicine as a tool of colonialism is something that I have touched on here and there. I am by no means an expert and there's a tremendous amount of scholarship on that. But you do see it come through very strongly in the film as it frames medicine as one of the things that Europe and whiteness has to offer that metropole can bring to the colony. And you see kind of very clearly she references, she is shown around a hospital, and they talk about how the local women tend not to have children in hospitals. They just dig a hole in the ground, which is, of course, absurd, but does kind of represent how they saw traditional medicine practices of the Congo. And then sort of an emphasis on bringing medicine and hygiene to the Congo. And that was a very strong part of the colonial regime, particularly in the early 20th century. Again, it's quite striking that it is specifically the Congo, not just because of the colonial connections between Belgium and Congo, but also the Congo is one of the main sites of the first very serious attempts by Western medicine to combat and to treat sleeping sickness, which is mentioned as well in the film and to help promote tropical medicine as a field of study in the broader Western medical canon. So again, it, it does fill in from there.
0: That's very interesting. Uh, Bridget, I've got just one more question before we, we move on to maybe a little bit of a wider focus on nuns on, on the screen. Uh, I do, I do want to ask you about whether you've encountered any any examples of nuns or religious communities being involved in the resistance to the Nazis. This is something that is, is depicted in, in the film.
3: Yeah, again, the relationship between the Catholic Church and World War II and the Nazi Party is a very large, rich area of scholarship, which I have barely touched. But certainly there were instances of nuns aiding in resistance, nuns particularly hiding people within the convents and on a number of occasions nuns hiding Jewish children in their own beds under the understanding that it was unlikely that Nazis were going to come in the night and disrupt the nun's bed and using their own reputation and their own privacy and cultural clout to help protect Jewish children in at least some instances. I can't kind of speak to that on the macro level, but I have at the very least come across some anecdotal evidence of Catholic resistance organized through religious congregations.
1: And Bridget, so it's just while we're on the the war, so it's the context of the war and the resistance that finally leads uh, Sister Luke to leave the the convent. What what were the challenges of of leaving religious life and how, how difficult was it to abandon life in the convent?
3: It was not unheard of, but certainly very rare and would have carried quite a large amount of stigma. I've recently just published an article about Mary Frances Cusack, who is a very prominent Irish nun who did a huge amount of work in Ireland and also in America, published about 50 books, and she left quite near the end of her life. But you did need official sanction in order to do it. You had to sort of get a bishop or often a cardinal, in some cases Mary Francis Cusack, wrote directly to the Pope asking for permission to leave. You needed to seek permission to give up your vows in sort of a voluntary fashion. There was also the option of leaving without permission. There was no legal restraint on people leaving. You would have been let out the front door if you insisted, but that would have carried a tremendous amount of stigma and would have been seen as quite an egregious sin.
0: So, as I said at this point, before we do come to a close, we're going to look at maybe more broad topics. And I'm actually going to start with you, Sam. Could could you perhaps put this film in the context of the kinds of films that were being made in, in the 1950s? So, you, you've mentioned epics, and I think something else that I'd be very interested to hear is it is, it is surprising for, for modern viewers that the fact that the Congo is portrayed in such a positive light Given the notoriety that that it has now, maybe you could also mention the popularity of of film setting in the empire that was crumbling by that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the film uh, draws on a number of traditions. So one you've just mentioned there, so as you could, what you could call colonial films. So um, especially in the you know the nineteen thirties, there were lots of British films made about the empire, which were essentially propaganda films. But then, you know, into the 1950s, you have films like um, The African Queen, which was actually a U.S.-U.K. co-production, which, again, you know, focuses on missionaries in in Africa. I suppose then you also have a tradition of Catholicism on on film, you know, especially, you know, um, Hollywood made lots of films centred on Catholicism in the 1940s and into the 1950s. So things like uh, The Song of Bernadette or The Bells of St. Mary's, and then I think finally you yeah, probably have a tradition of you know nuns being depicted in in Hollywood films which is something that again continued into the 1950s um, with things like um, Heaven Knows Mr Allison and then the film we're talking about today that's something that goes on into the 1960s with films like the The Sound of Music and then I would say the depiction of nuns changes from that that point on but maybe that's something we'll talk about more in a, in a little bit well
0: i think we can talk about it now yes yeah, so like um maybe two questions well, maybe one could be for you Sam, and then maybe one could be for for bridget so is there a change in the way that nuns are depicted and then i uh, how can how can we account for for the popularity of nuns on
1: on film
3: why are nuns funny i think <laughs> i i've come across this question more than once
1: uh, well, good, good question. I think like that is one of the traditions of the the nun film, if you can you can call it that, because this film to me seems a lot more um, sort of reverential and respectful than a lot of more recent depictions of of nuns. So, uh, so from the nineteen seventies, you had what were called nunsploitation films. Which often well, portrayed nuns as being, you know, quite kinky basically as a way of um <laughs> as a way of critiquing the the Catholic Church. Um and then from the eighties and nineties you have the kind of nun based comedies, you know, things like Sister Act and, and Nuns on the on the run. So definitely, um portrayals of nuns have definitely changed over over time. And I guess that um well I think you'll probably be able to say more on this, Bridget, but I suppose that reflects how our um, attitudes towards nuns has changed over the course of the 20th century uh, yeah uh, for, for listeners at home that, that that is an ice cream van
0: outside Sam's house um, <laughs> uh, but yeah Bridget please continue
3: <laughs> you forgot to mention of course the Blues Brother the best depiction of nuns on screen that has ever occurred <laughs> I believe that part of what happened was the result of Vatican II, that religious congregations were forced to justify their own existence, and that led to sort of a precarious place within congregations themselves, and then spreading out into society as a whole. So part of what you have kind of coming out of Vatican II is a lot of religious congregations readdressed whether or not they should have a habit and what kind of what habit they should have so kind of changes in dress a lot of religious congregations broke up their sort of large convents and started living in normal houses and community homes to try and kind of merge better with the community and then that led to sort of a crisis of identity which then makes it harder to maintain that reverential tone but with the memory of the large amount of respect they used to have, which leads to, basically, the Blues Brothers, this idea of these like very scary women who ultimately don't have any authority but feel like they do.
0: Maybe we can kind of drill in a little bit more into the link between this film and Vatican II. So it basically depicts the decades immediately preceding Vatican II, more or less. And I think while by the standards of... Nuns on the Run. It's quite a reverential film. I think you could see the film as as a criticism of religious life. Is it too simple to say that Vatican II was, in part, addressing the criticisms that that film was making about religious orders and nuns specifically?
3: Well, probably not directly, but certainly. Yeah, there was concern about justifying the purpose and the existence of these strict rules which religious congregations lived under, and a need, a perceived need to modernize and to sort of move with the times. And part of that involved much greater fostering of individual identity. So for instance, again, depended massively from congregation to congregation, but you have things like, as I said, changing of the habits women leaving their hair uncovered, many of nuns for the first time in many, many years. And also things like having more democratic governing systems within the congregations and the communities themselves. Things like nuns having their own money and having control over their own finances, which previously would have been handled centrally. So the film shows a very strict, rigid, rather archaic way of life, which was what Vatican II, in many ways, aimed to address.
0: Thanks, Bridget. That's really interesting. Maybe Sam and Morris, what what was your opinion of the film? Did did you think it was a criticism, or do you think it was making the nuns into something other, something exotic? Did you feel that it was an attempt at realism, or was it a mixture of of all three?
2: I think at different stages in the film, it was trying to do different things. The starting bit, I certainly would say that it it made uh, religious life look very odd and very structured, and I think it's contrasted quite explicitly, really, at the end to authoritarianism and and the Nazis coming in. It's you know it's a fairly explicit change of heart that uh, Sister Luke has when you know she's asking the question of you can't just follow orders, linking that you know from German soldiers just following orders and then following orders in, in spirituality and, in, and being a nun. Uh, I think where it doesn't have any real criticism is is the section in the Belgian Congo, which does look very out of place to a modern audience. They're still filming under decolonization, so they're not really wanting to address that too explicitly, perhaps. But certainly, it doesn't make being a nun look particularly attractive, from my perspective.
0: Yeah, some will Would either of you like to come in to add or to contradict Morris there?
3: Yeah, I think it was something, and this is coming as someone who studies nuns, someone who who sort of has a particular focus on this. One thing that was striking to me was that at some points it did suggest that the problem wasn't so much the convent as it was Sister Luke's attitude to the convent. There is the point where she confesses that she didn't fail her exams, even though she had been advised to out of a need for obedience. And she was told that actually that was too much to ask. And then at other points, she is told that basically her sins, anything that she does against the rule will be publicly discussed, but that she will eventually out of time stop being embarrassed by that. And what we have with Sister Luke is that she is a fairly strong-willed person who demands perfection of herself and of others which is part of her relationship with the doctor which we haven't had the chance to touch on and that she can't do that whereas perhaps other people could sort of go well I'm never actually going to be able to live this perfectly obedient life and no one actually secretly no one is actually expecting that of me that's why we have all of these systems so kind of looking at as a movement towards perfection rather than expecting perfection from the start. But this is coming from someone who sort of has looked at this from more or less every angle. And I don't think it's necessarily immediately obvious within the film that that is where they're going from it.
0: Well, I think you've put it far more eloquently than I could have done. I think that there is an element of, of kind of tragedy in the, in the way that the film is kind of set up. Well, maybe tragedy is the wrong word. The the conflict in the film is between somebody who is ambitious and strong-willed, but at the same time who really wants to make a success out of being a nun, and there is a conflict between somebody like that and the system that she's trying to make a success out of.
3: And certainly it's telling in the film that she isn't kicked out of the convent and she isn't shown breaking religious rule, like that she has this sort of erotically charged relationship with the doctor in the Congo, but nothing ever actually happens. And when she leaves, she actually has to argue her way and force her way out of the convent because everyone around her thought that she was a good nun. She just wasn't living up to the standards that she held herself to. It's certainly a way to read the film. Uh, I do think, and this is this is an aside, but it is something that I thought about through the entire filming, What wonderful casting Audrey Hepburn was because it very clearly from the first frame you you go well this woman clearly doesn't have to be a nun and it's sort of by casting one of the great Hollywood actresses of all time one of the great kind of Hollywood beauties of, of all time it immediately frames this as an affirmative choice she is making rather than something that she is forced into or giving up and it it's constantly reinforced by the fact that throughout the film there are comments about how beautiful she is and about how she is still young enough to have children, which is something that I I wanted to bring up. Just the power of that specific casting.
2: It's interesting that uh, Audrey Hepburn does have some kind of connections to the story as well. I suppose uh, I mean she was born in, in Belgium, uh, obviously, and then when she was filming. For the 1960 film, The Unforgiven, she had a near fatal horse riding accident and she was actually nursed back to health by the nun that she was portraying in the film, Mary Louise Habits. So that was an interesting little twist of fate there.
3: Oh.
1: So, Sam, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that um, one of the things we often talk about on this uh, on this podcast is... I suppose the reasons why filmmakers make particular choices when making historical films. So it's interesting that you've just said that you think Audrey Hepburn is is perfect for the for the part, and I'm sure the the filmmakers picked Audrey Hepburn because they thought that too. But I'm sure there were also commercial reasons for choosing Audrey Hepburn in that she was one of the you know most bankable film stars at that time. So it just I guess it's more of a hypothetical question. I wonder how much of a how much of the decision was based on on commerce, and how much of it was based on the fact that she would best represent this type of nun?
0: Thank you very much, Bridget. It's been it's been great to have you on. We like to make sure that we've answered the question that we set out with, which is what can the nun story tell us about life inside and outside the convent you definitely have answered that question over over the course of the episode but if you wouldn't mind just kind of boiling it down to another of your your great three sentence uh summaries just just to close us out with
3: yeah it shows the personal journey and personal stakes that were often there for women who decided to join religious life as well as giving kind of a wonderful tasting platter of the different areas in which nuns had power and influence in the early 20th century, as well as giving hints as to where the Catholic Church was going to seek change in the period immediately following the film.
0: Dr Bridget Harrison, Dr Morris Brody, Dr Sam Manning, uh, thank you very much for answering today's question, what can the nuns story tell us about life inside and outside the convent? I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Historian's Cup.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Bye. True.